this morning. You know what? Before we get into this, let me say a quick word of prayer. Lord Jesus, uh, it's just, it's weighty on me, Lord, that uh, we're going to be talking about your bride, uh, your body, the fellowship of believers, the church, the thing that you left behind to do this thing called the Great Commission, Lord. And we just pray that, uh, I pray that my words would be clear, that uh, we'd speak um, about your bride in a way that is loving, in a way that uh, represents you correctly, Lord. Thank you for giving us the church. Thank you for what it means to us, both, uh, both corporately and as individuals. And I just pray that that would come through today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Before we jump into this session, I want to just talk about two things real quick. Just touch on a couple things. Number one, uh, just so it's clear, part of the reason that we do these Radius Missiology conferences, and we're going to promo the next one. It's going to be back in Minneapolis next year at uh, Bethlehem Baptist, nonetheless. And uh, part of the reason that we do this is precisely for what Chad did in the last session, is to open up certain missiologies, certain methodologies that are out there, because DMM, man, is waist, head, and shoulders, the going missiology of this day, to talk about some of these things, to have a discussion, and not a discussion where this is what Radius thinks, this is what Pioneers thinks, this is what New Transmission thinks, those types of What does the Word of God say about these things? And so we take that very seriously. Radius has a two-pronged effort. Number one is to teach students, to train students, like what Ron's talking about, to take the gospel somewhere where it's never been before, to unreached people groups. We take that very seriously. And then the other one is to speak to these, to these methodologies, to these missiologies, and ultimately to the theologies that undergird them. These are theologies. Don't get that wrong. From someone's theology springs their missiology. From their missiology comes their methodology, what they actually will do on the field. When somebody flies over the jungle and is sprinkling tracks out of a window of an airplane or handing out Evangi cubes in Czechoslovakia, both things that have happened in the last two weeks from different people that we know, that doesn't come just because they were one to that overnight. That springs from a certain theology, the way that they see salvation, the way that they understand the Holy Spirit, the way that they understand their Bible. So it's really, really key that not only are we sending out missionaries that have a rooted, a biblically rooted theology, but man, the church as a whole, that we're getting up to speed on these certain methodologies that are being talked about that are ultimately theologies. The other thing that I want to talk about real quick is that we apply the principles of wisdom and Scripture evenly across all areas of missions. And what, do I mean, what I mean by that is this. Um, to apply wisdom, there's certain principles of wisdom that we apply here in San Diego, in El Cajon, that carry over that are very true. We would never send somebody over to, well, maybe we would, I don't know, um, send somebody over to bang, or trust somebody to be a greeter at a door that has a really bad personality, that has uh, poor people skills, that doesn't show up on time, that uh, is rude to the church leaders, then we shouldn't send that same guy to Bangladesh. That doesn't mean that he's a good missionary. Well, he doesn't fit here. He's got some odd eccentricities. He's got some uniquenesses about him. That word uniquenesses. He's a special guy. He might do great on the mission field. No, 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 no. If he's odd here, if he's got some strangeness, some uniquenesses here, if he's undisciplined here, hold that same principle 
And don't apply it over, don't think that it changes just because he was on a 16-hour plane flight. That doesn't change anything. He's still the same individual over there. That's a principle of wisdom. And man, we don't want to plant churches in that way. We don't want to apply um, those principles here and not apply them over on the field. In the same way, the principles that Scripture teaches us about rules of communication, biblical qualifications for a leader, uh, foundations for the gospel, they're foundational in San Diego. They're foundational overseas as well. They work in Saudi Arabia, and they're just as applicable over there as they are here. And in the same sense, things that are very much pointed towards <clears throat> secular Westerners, I didn't want to say that too wrong, secular Westerners, they apply just as well to Buddhists, to Muslims, to Hindus, to animists, to tribal animists. Too often we hear of guys talking about, well, that's great, that works for a tribal location, but it wouldn't work in Muslim circles. The principles are the same. The application might be a little bit different, but the principles are going to be the same. The principles hold true. What applies as truth in a Muslim setting applies just as well in an animistic tribal setting. The things that my wife and I and our teammates put into practice, and we're going to get into that a little bit later, in Yembi Yembi are being applied in Mozambique by a friend of mine right there, same thing, applied just a little bit differently, but the principles are there. It still carries over true. So this idea that, well, that works there, but it wouldn't work there. That's a little bit of intellectual dishonesty. So, man, as we come into this and as a lot of guys talk about their backgrounds and we talk about different things, remember, the principles are the key thing. The application is going to look different, but the principles fly all the way across all cultures because if they're biblically rooted, they actually work in each one of these locations. So I just want to throw that one out there. Um, my topic that I'm actually going to be talking on is going to be disciples. Is disciple making sufficient? I'm going to get into that one. And uh, just the topic comes down to this. This particular theology, the primary goal of the church planner is to make disciples. And what it means is disciples first and church planning second. And the reason for that is if you make disciples, the thought is, is if you make disciples, churches will naturally come from that. So you don't need to worry too much about planning churches. Because if you plant, or if you make disciples, churches will come out of that. And yeah, the other reason, uh, the reason that uh, churches, <coughs> excuse me, that you make disciples is that uh, the idea that the church has somehow been hijacked by the West. The West is um, a culture, or the church is a Western institution as a whole, and it doesn't have a lot of bearing around the world. And so this idea that disciples are the primary thing that we're going for. They're the end product that we're after. That is a current missiology that's really gained a lot of traction. So I'm going to be talking about that a lot, to, or a lot in my session. Um, one of the underpinnings of this comes out of Matthew 28. It says this, Therefore go and make disciples. And that's the bar that is set. There's no mention of church planting in there. There's no mention of going around, uh, establishing things, raising up leaders, doing anything along those lines. One of the quotes that kind of summarizes this uh, missiology is this. It says this, If you have disciples, you will always get the church. But if you make a church, you will rarely get disciples. And I want to look at that just uh, really not... Let me say that part again. If you make disciples, you will always get the church. But if you make a church, 
you will rarely get disciples. Now think about that just briefly. Think about the implications of that. I certainly, when we went to Yembe Yembe, the last thing on my mind was to make a church, to set up a building, to set up uh, something that would end up dying and to not have the disciples that would actually carry it on to fruition. But I think Scripture refutes this methodology in three different ways. Number one, there's no dichotomy between disciple-making and church planting. If you have disciples that truly have been trained in all Scripture, and remember, when Jesus uh, passes on, and he's, or when he leaves his disciples with the marching orders in Matthew 28, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. That's part of the commandment. And if that is part of it, that includes all of Scripture. And so when Jesus passes that on, disciples that have no knowledge of the church, they're something else. They're not disciples. They're something else entirely. So that's point number one. Disciples do not naturally grow into mature churches. We don't naturally see disciples growing into churches. That doesn't happen anymore than children grow into mature adults. I've got a 17-year-old boy. And his uh, upbringing right now, uh, teaching him how to drive, teaching him how to navigate the public school arena, for him to grow into that manhood, grow into a good father, grow into a good husband without having some guidance, without having some teaching, it would never happen. The same with disciples. We don't see that happening anywhere in the New Testament where disciples naturally grow into, naturally congregate into churches. And the third objection that I think Christ, or that uh, Scripture would have to this is this one. The church is not a Western institution. The church, you can objectively see in Scripture that there are marks for a church, and we're going to get into those piece by piece. What are the objective marks of a church that we see in the New Testament? So we're going to dig into each one of those things because I believe the church is paramount. All other endeavors exist to strengthen and to see mature church mature churches established where there are none. And when it comes to the unreached people groups, making disciples is a crucial step, but it's not the final goal. It can't be the end goal. Otherwise, the job remains. The task must always be to plant churches. Everything else falls short of that. So, I think I've got my clicker here. PowerPoint clicker. Nope. Okay. I'm going to trust the guys at the back. They're going to track with me. This guy right here? Okay. Perfect. All right. So I'm going to get into a little bit of my story, just so you guys have some background into who I am, um, some of the things that uh, I have in my history speaking to this. I was raised over in uh, the Itedi, in, yeah, in the tribe where mom and dad worked for 20-some years, uh, went to boarding school, school for 12 or 11 of those, came back here for one year. And then uh, after graduation, like I shared in uh, Pastor Jeremiah's introduction, came back, wanted to join the Marine Corps, ended up coming out here, going to college. I'll make that one a real quick, short one. Met my wife, uh, Lord Lover. She was engaged, or not engaged. She was three weeks engaged, three weeks away from being engaged to another guy. So had to dig in there, uh, fight really hard with the $22 that I had in my pocket. And... Um, just through that process, uh, came out of here with a degree in business administration. At this time, at this campus right here, there used to be the college on this campus called Christian Heritage. Came out of here with that degree, and I started working as a baseline accountant. Worked my way up from baseline accountant up to accounting manager and eventually to CFO of this organization. Worked over in Europe quite a bit. 
And uh, not through any uh, bright lights, any shining stars, anything on the beach as I was walking along that said missionary or Papua New Guinea or anything like that. Honestly, through this book and this book alone, did uh, we get challenged into missions. And I just meant 20 seconds on that. When I was over in Papua New Guinea, at the end, I was in charge of 200 and some uh, missionaries. And we had a little time where we got together and we would talk about how we all ended up in this job. And of the 200 or so, um, none of them got a missionary call. They read their Bibles, they believed it, and they said, I'll do it, I'll do it. And I believe in the God that is just as powerful to close doors as he is to open doors. If he doesn't want me going, he will close these doors. And so that was our experience as well. Uh, We headed off, got uh, some training, praise God, with New Tribe's mission to go to the unreached people groups. If we were going to leave this job behind, leave behind our careers, leave behind our history here in uh, the United States, we were not going to go somewhere where the gospel was already present. We wanted to make it count. And so we went uh, over to Papua New Guinea, learned the national language there, and uh, we ended up moving into a tribe or a people group called the Yembe Yembe people. And this is the first survey that we did. We'd never met them before in our lives. We changed locations on the tarmac right there. We were going to go to another location, but uh, this, the airstrip that we were going to land at was flooded. And so we jumped, uh, the pilot asked us if we had a second choice, and the second choice was this place called Yembe Yembe. So we jumped in there, uh, headed off to Yembe Yembe, landed a whole series of stories. The Yembe's are really excitable, um, yeah, engaging people. They'd been asking for missionaries, not for Jesus. There's a big difference in their mind, uh, for seven years. And so they were pretty excited to have us. We um, moved in, and they started engaging us as a group. It was pretty exciting just to see how excited they were to have us there, and they wanted us to be part of the social fabric. They adopted us into clans. When the first time that we got in there, there's four clans in Yembe There's the ostrich clan, eagle clan, black cockatoos, and toucans. They're all birds. And uh, they said, if you're going to truly come, if you're going to be part of us, we really want you to be part of these clans. And so uh, they looked at me, they looked at my long legs, and they said, yeah, ostrich clan, that's you. Um, so they picked me up in that, and then my wife with the blonde hair, she was in the Eagle Clan. They adopted her into there. They gave us new names. They actually asked us to get remarried because they didn't believe that the ones in the cold country, that's you guys and everybody in Canada, everybody outside of Papua New Guinea, uh, that they'd married us correctly, and they adopted us into different families. And we, man, it, it, was, it was a challenge in some ways, but after we started getting to the gospel, to get the gospel to come as an insider the way that they would choose to see us as a family member, man, what an incredible benefit it was at that point. And so getting adopted in, uh, my son, only son, he's an only child. He gained seven brothers and 13 sisters overnight, and uh, there was just a lot of benefit to that. We were already convinced at that point that we needed to have gospel clarity, that without gospel clarity like what Ron was talking about, syncretism happens, syncretism, the mixing of two religions, the existing religion along with the introduced one, happens automatically, automatically, 100% of the time. It will happen unless you're clear on what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. And so that was really impressed on us. And the only way you can be guaranteed that you are going to be saying the things that they understand that you really want to mean is to know the language and the culture fluently. And so we took uh, four years from the time that we landed on the field all the way till when we were ready to present the gospel till we actually could speak their language, their culture clearly, 
to where we could understand what it was like to be a Yembiemi, to live on the river system, to have uh, the alligators and the crocodiles and their cosmology stories and all the way that they viewed life through their grid. It took us that long just to get up to speed on those various things. And then finally, uh, in 2008, we started the creation to Christ teaching. We call it foundational teaching down at Radius. And just getting to teach through what it meant uh, to be a human being. Man, I, I still, I'm firmly convinced that somebody who doesn't understand Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, there's no way in the world they understand Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Without that foundational piece, without the understanding of the Old Testament, without the understanding of the three main players in the human drama, humans, Satan, God, without the understanding of those things, their origins, you don't have a clue about what's going on when you start to get to the New Testament, and the New Testament starts walking, or talking about those various things. And I remember, as we're teaching through, and we're going through these lessons, we're teaching uh, three hours a day, twice a day, for four months. It took us that long to get through from the Old Testament all the way through to the life of Jesus. I remember an older veteran missionary coming up, and uh, he came up on the radio, and he told me, uh, get ready. As soon as you have believers, the real work begins. That's when the real work actually kicks in. This, this is kid stuff. This is easy. Making babies is easy. Raising them, that's a whole different animal. So I'm listening to this over the radio, and I'm not terribly excited because I'm burning the candle at both ends. We built an airfield out there uh, in Yembe Yembe. took us almost a year and a half to do that. I lost 27 pounds doing that. For the creation to Christ teaching, I lost almost 40 pounds just because the stress of it, what you're going through, will they understand what you mean? Do they get what you're talking about? And then to hear this guy come up on the radio and say, get ready, the real work's coming. Man, good night. Am I going to make it through this? Is it even possible to have a healthy, functioning human body by the end of this process? And so that was, that was heavy on our hearts as we got through. But man, I tell you what, guys, I think he was right on the money. Uh, when he was talking about these things, that this is the beginning of it. This isn't the end. This is the beginning. To get to have converts, that's the easy part. Getting them to a church, that's, that's the real work. That's actually where the heavy lifting begins. And I think it's ludicrous, <clears throat> looking at the child analogy, to think that you can have baby converts and they're naturally going to grow into a church. I think even Scripture speaks of this. I, I want to, I'm going to bounce around to a ton of Scriptures here, but Acts 20, uh, Paul is saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders here. He's on the shore, and remember, he's taught them for three years. He's sat with them. He's discipled them. He's nurtured them in his protectionist language that he uses and he, as he prepares them for his departure. As he's moving on, he's no longer going to be a part of them. And this is an adolescent church. This isn't a mature, established church at this point. It's an adolescent church. But think of the language that he uses, much less what many of the graduates of Radius, many of the new missionaries heading overseas are going to do when they have baby churches. Listen to this. It says this, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Be on your guard. Look out. 
Be ready. Protect yourselves. There will be things coming. And this was an adolescent church. This was not a baby church. If he's using that language with a four-year-old church, think of what these guys have to endure as they get ready and they have this much background on Jewish culture, on the history that all the Jewish guys came into it with. I remember um, also when we, were, we finished the teaching, a group of the Yembe Yembe's, um, they went out to town and these were believers at this point, and they were going to go sell some cocoa beans. And they went out, and they were selling cocoa beans, and they came back in. And at the first time that we had the teaching service again, they got up in front of the church, and they were praising God for the incredible grace that he gave them on the trip. And I'm just going, man, this is incredible. And they said, they said this. They said, it was so incredible to see God go to bat for us as we were out there. We were on the PMV, and we were a public motor vehicle, the bus that was taking the cocoa beans all the way out there. They motor canoed for five hours, and then they got on this bus. And they said, we were on the PMV, and we got to the drop-off point, and the guy who was supposed to come through and take our money, he turned his back just at the right time. So we all snuck off the bus, and we never had to pay him. Isn't God great? He's just incredible. And I mean, guys, I'm sitting there and I'm just shuddering. How far do we have to go? How far, how much we have to teach in order to get them to the point of maturity to where they can stand on their own. And robbing a driver of a bus isn't seen as the grace of God. Man, it was astounding. And I remember, again, uh, another missionary speaking to me and he's saying this. What did you expect? What did you expect? Think of yourself. Change of plan. Yeah, and this veteran missionary just telling me, think of yourself. And man, I would challenge you guys. As you think of planting churches, as you think of as missions pastors, as pastors, as missionaries heading overseas, think of where you were at in the faith. And did you naturally grow in your knowledge? Or did someone have to come alongside you, disciple you, train you? to the point to where you were mature enough to stand, to where you were mature enough to be a member of a church, to actually be a teacher, to be an elder. Anything that you have gained from the church, man, think of all the things that you went through. And these guys, as they were in that spot, man, it was refreshing to kind of hear that because it put some of those things in perspective for us. The other thing, um, after four years of discipling the Yembe Yembe's, and uh, I mean, I'll just reiterate these guys, we... It took us four and a half years to learn the language and culture. To get through the creation of Christ teaching, it took us another four months. It took us seven years from the point of the church till we were actually ready to hand, to the point of the birth of the church to where we were able to hand it off to the Yembis to where it was a self-led church. Seven years. Four at the beginning, four months to make the babies, seven months to actually see them mature enough to stand on their own. That's where the bulk of the time went in. Four years into that process, I remember uh, sitting with the Yembis as well, and those guys uh, were sitting there, and we were finally teaching the books of Timothy and Titus, the leadership books for churches, and talking about the qualifications of an elder. And we went around the room for the different guys that were in the leadership course at that time, and they stood up. The, the Yembis are not like you guys. The Yembis, when you're up there speaking, or like this, in, a, in the teaching house is what we call it. We don't call it the church. We call it the teaching house. They will call you out. They will yell from the back, keep talking. If they like what you're saying, they're going to yell from the back, keep talking. 
I like what you're saying. It's good for my belly. It feels good in my belly. That's the seat of their emotions. If they don't like what you're saying, they will yell out just as well and say, shut your mouth. My ears are burning. I don't want to hear any more of this talk. If they like what you're saying, they'll turn to the guy next to him maybe and they'll strike up a conversation. Hey, did you hear that? I kind of agree with that. That's really good. And this is all happening while you're teaching. And so the Yembies are very bold and direct in some of these things. So we got to the part where we're naming or we're starting to talk about what it means to be an elder, a leader in the Yembe or in the church. And they started going around the room. Well, you're out because of your marriage. Yeah, I've, yeah I've, we've all seen the way that uh, you talk with your wife and the way she talks to you, and you're out because of your kids. Man, those guys are horrible. Remember them when we sit in the thing? And you're out because, yeah, you still have a stealing problem. Everybody knows it except for you. But, uh, and they went around the room like that just for every one of them. Well, you, 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 and just drilled each other. And everything they said was true. Guys, man, I tell you what, another head-sinking moment for me as I thought through how far do we have to go to get these believers to the point to where they can actually be a mature church? Self-guided, actually making it to being a church by themselves? No way. Not a chance in the world. It will not naturally get to that point. I was a church planning consultant for seven years over there in Papua New Guinea. Nothing in my experience would ever say that disciples naturally congregate into churches. It just does not happen. And so I want to, that's point number one. Point number two is, man, I want to get into, can you have churchless Christians? Can we actually have churchless Christians? Christians that don't attend church, that don't see the church as a priority. Can you be a part of the body, the bride of Christ, the family of God, and not a part of a local church? Can missionaries go overseas, make disciples, that are not taught about the maturity of the local church, that are not taught about what the church means. Is that possible? Would we be fulfilling the Great Commission if that takes place? And I just want to turn over, if you've got your Bibles, turn over to Ephesians. We're going to dip through the uh, three passages in Ephesians and just look at this really quickly because I don't think Scripture has a place for Christians that don't see the local church as supreme. There just does not exist that in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7. We'll start there. It says this. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of, the God, by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent, listen to this, his intent that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Through the church, not through individual believers, not through disciples, through the church, the organism, the organization, through the church, the boundless riches of Christ are found. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages past is made known to the Gentiles. Through the church, the wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. All of these things, if we don't have the church, they don't exist. They're not for individual believers. Through the church, these blessings come. 
He, or excuse me, Ephesians 4.11, flip over to the next chapter, says this. So Christ himself gave, the, gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, the pastors and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. It's for the church. Pastors, teachers, evangelists, leaders, it's for the church that he gave those gifts to him. He gave those gifts to us, to all of us, to see those things come into place. Ephesians 5.28, next chapter in, he says this, In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. No, we haven't. This is actually the right read. Um, He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and his church. Man, think of our new members classes if we let out with that one. The most intimate relationship we have, the most intimate relationship and the consummation of it, he doesn't equate it to man and woman. He equates it to Christ and his church. If you don't know the church, you don't know Christ. If you're not a part of the local church, you're not a part of Christ. If that's what he's united to, and that's the one thing that we do not engage in, you don't know Christ. It's through that relationship, through Christ and his church, that disciples and believers are brought in. That's the linchpin of it. I love Kevin DeYoung. He wrote this book uh, titled Why We Love the Church. He says this, We all need Christ, his word, his spirit, and not least of all his bride. You cannot have a foundation without a house. You cannot have a head without a body. And you can't have a groom without a bride. The New Testament knows nothing of unchurched Christianity. There is no Christianity without Christ and no Christ without his church. We need the individuals of the church, the institution of the church, and we need the, or- the church as organism and organization. The church is the lasting vehicle. The church is actually the thing that sees it to the finish line. If we stop short at disciples, a necessary step, converts, disciples, church, they got to be in there. But if we stop at that halfway point, we really don't fulfill the Great Commission. We only take it to the three-quarter mark. We had some radius staff that were up at, uh, I think it was an Operation World Convention where uh, Patrick Johnstone, the original author of Operation World, he was up there speaking, and they had a Q&A session afterwards, and somebody asked him the question, what do you see as the most valid tool to eradicate AIDS in Africa? What do you think is going to be the, the biggest tool that we've got in our arsenal to see that epidemic stopped? Is it going to be uh, education? Is it going to be uh, contraception? Is it going to be abstinence teaching? That kind of stuff. What do you think it'll be? He didn't hesitate for a second. Church planning. Church planning. It's the only thing that stands the test of time. All other things fall away. The church is the only recognized vehicle that actually implements long-term change, and it sticks. Short-term, many other things. 
Long term, church planting. Church planting. It's the only thing. And so I want to dive into the definition of a church because we all say church and man, we're all applauding. I always applaud when people are talking about the church. But to get into the details of what a church is and what a church isn't. If it's where two or more are gathered together and that's the length of the definition, and please go back and do your exegesis on that. I remember translating that. That is entirely out of context. It's not talking about the church. It's actually talking about church discipline. If it's two or more, where two or more are gathered together, if it's unbelievers gathering together or a group of people being led by unbelievers, then yes, those things are easily reproducible. You can produce many of those quickly. But if it's something more than that, if it's something a little bit further drawn out from what we see in Scripture, that's pretty difficult. Those are going to be challenging things to reproduce. And I want to just touch on this because sometimes... There's this idea that when we talk about church, we're talking about stained glass windows, pipe organs, pews, hymnals, those types of things. It's not the form that we're looking for. It's the function. The form is going to look different in each location. The church that stands in Yembe Yembe this day is very, very different from what we do here on Sunday. It is radically different. I won't get into that. That's a whole other sermon. But uh, if we're going to get into the church... <clears throat> It's going to have to be very specifics that are going to be pulled out of Scripture. It is not something that is a Western institution. We're not talking about those types of things. And so let's not do the straw man thing, the caricatures. That's not what we're talking about in church. We're talking about can it be something that's pulled out of Scripture? Is it something that we can define? And I want to just throw in a quick sidebar here really quickly. If you are a sending pastor, if you're a missions pastor, if you're a missionary getting ready to head out, especially if you're pastors, man, ask your prospective missionaries. Ask the agency that they're going with. What's your definition of a church? What is your definition of a church? Can they produce a definition that has some depth to it? Because if they can't produce it, it's really hard to know when you get to the finish line what it is. It's really hard to know, or it's so malleable, it's so undefinable that anything qualifies as a church if it's not clearly defined before you head overseas. And so, man, I, I would challenge you. Those, some of those conversations are incredibly heartening. Some of them are disheartening. But I'm going to walk through, and the, the text for this is going to be right off the Radius website. If you want to see this stuff again, go to the Radius website, the seven marks of a cross-cultural New Testament church. This is on the website. There's some literature out there about the nine marks of a healthy church, that type of thing. We're not going to get into that. We're not talking about healthy church today. We're talking about the seven marks of a church, period. You have these things, you have a church. You don't, man, you have some glaring gaps and you still have work to do. And so we're going to walk through this really quickly. And uh, yeah, hopefully by the end of it, we'll have it nailed down. Indicators of a cross-cultural New Testament church. Number one. The believers, they are believers from a cross-section of the community. And number one, they're believers. There should be unbelievers coming to it, but the primary makeup of it should be a church, should be believers, people who understand what Christ did for them on the cross, that he was raised for their sins, they've repented of those things, and they walk in fellowship with their creator. That is the number one criteria. It says this in Acts 2.38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, 
For all who have called on the Lord, uh, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 of them were added to the church that day. Those who accepted his message, those who got it, those who understood, oh, like Chad was talking about, that objective event that happened, they understood that news, and they were added to the church that day. The church is made up of believers. And number two, it's made up of a cross-section of the community. It's not a family. It's not a clan. When we were in Yembe Yembe, we had the four clans, the ostrich clan, eagle clan, black cockatoos, uh, toucans. The ostrich clan was the one that was the major dominant clan, and we recognized that to be a significant weakness in the church until we had a broader cross-section of the actual society there. Man, we had to work at that tooth and nail so it didn't become an ostrich clan thing. Think of the church in Antioch, the five guys in Acts uh, Acts 13 that were sent out. Barnabas, who was a wealthy landowner. Simeon, who was from Africa. Lucius from Cyrene, also known as Libya. Manian, a close friend and relative of Herod Antipas, the guy who killed John the Baptist. And Saul from Tarsus. Think of the diversity just within that group that made up the leadership of the church at Antioch. There's a cross-section there from all different walks of life. This represents a church in so many different ways. It can't be limited to a thin, thin group that is a small representation of the wider society. Francis Schaeffer said this, The New Testament clearly indicates that churches were formed wherever some became Christians. In a sense, we have a complete picture of what the church ought to be from the Antioch church. Individuals who became Christians, but not individualistic ones. The congregation covers the full spectrum of society. A church should mark everyone. It should have a representation from everyone within the society. Number two, does it have a tangible spiritual life about it? Does it have a tangible spiritual life? Acts 2.42 says this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to breaking of bread, to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give it to anyone who had in need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Are the members practicing their gifts? Is they exercising forgiveness, fellowship, the sharing of faith? Are they a vibrant body? Do they have a tangible spiritual life about them? Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When we got into Yembe Yembe, um, we presented the gospel, and we had a small group of believers. The reason it was small was because this was a really, it was a tremendous break from the old way of life. And I praise God to this day that we went through a period of persecution there that was just, it was unmatched. We had to send Nina and Bo uh, out of the tribe, my wife and son, out of the tribe three times, medevac them on an airplane because it was getting uh, too, too heavy. 
We had some teaching sessions where the unbelievers surrounded the teaching house and they rioted. They lit the teaching house on fire once. Um, most of the people who became believers in the first five years had their gardens cut down, their houses cut down. There were various things that they went through, but they, they kept on pressing. They kept on going. And I remember uh, one of my language helpers, uh, his name was Pops Lau. He came up and he was telling me that uh, one, of the, one of his sons had come back and he'd gone through something. His son was about seven years old. And his son... Um, was walking along and there had been a recent death. And Yembi Yembi, whenever somebody dies, everybody gathers together in one house because the spirit of the dead person is going to make its rounds and it's going to inflict pain on anybody who doesn't uh, show honor to it by gathering in the house where everybody's mourning and talking and telling stories about how the deceased was such a great guy or great gal. And so everybody gathers in one house. Well, the believers stopped doing that. After about six months into the teaching, after we started having some growth starting to come up in them, the believers stopped gathering in those houses. And one afternoon, it was about dusk, uh, one of their Pops Lau's son, his seven-year-old son, was walking along, and he's walking by the house. He was going to get a stick of fire. They had to get some fire um, from somewhere else because their fire had gone out in their house. And he's walking along, and everybody in the wailing house where everybody was gathered was screaming out at him, get in here, Adam, get in here. And he's acting like he can't listen. He's getting farther away. And then they start throwing sticks at him, start throwing stones. Get in here. Don't you know that the spirit is out there? It's rounding. It's looking for somebody to kill. It's looking for somebody to hurt, to get sick. And his son turned and he said, my dad said those stories aren't true. My dad said that when somebody dies, they go to heaven or they go to hell, but there's no in-between place. They go to one or the other. And he kept on walking. And I mean, the sticks and the stones and everything else just came flying out of the house. Then the epitaphs, all the other different things. But the, the, the life that this kid had been infused with through his, his father, the tangible life that he was showing based off of what he knew of Scripture, do they have that tangible life? Are they showing it to the community in a way that represents a different path? Or are they walking the same path as before? Number three, this one I would put in the top two of difficulty and uh, of significance. Do they have a new biblical identity? Do they see themselves beyond their old alliances? Do they see themselves outside of the family that they were, outside of the clan, outside of the e economic strata that they, they've been a part of? Do they see their family in the body first and everything else is second? Or is it just a weekend club thing? Is it something that they do when certain people are around, but it really has no significance when it, it doesn't benefit them? Ephesians 2, 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one. He has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two. Thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Through Christ we're all made one. We're one family. We have one new identity that supersedes all other identities. Those are marks of a church. For just, uh, Romans 12, 4, for just as each of us has one body with many members and those members do not have all the same functions, so in Christ 
Though many, we form one body, and each member belongs to each other. Through Christ, we belong to each other. We're one body. We have one identity. If we don't have this mark, we don't have a church. We don't have something that is transformative for the whole society. It supersedes all other things. The body of Christ is over all other relationships. Number four, hand in hand with this, about the same thing. Do they have a testimony to the community, those outside the community of faith, non-believers? Do they have a sense of difference between them and the church? Or are they all the same? Do they still attend the mosque? Do they still pray to Allah? Or is there some differentiation there? Is there a marked difference between them, even at the cost that they might possibly pay? 2 Timothy 3.12, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. <coughs> 1 Thessalonians 1.6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering and with joy given by the Holy Spirit. So you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. You became a model by the way you, co- you, had, you endured suffering, by the way you went through things, and you held strong to your identity. You didn't give in to what would have been easy. You didn't give in to what you knew was going to be painful. You knew you were going to walk through this. This is uh, our first baptism. First baptism that we had in Yembiembi, probably one of the heaviest days of my life. Uh, we knew that this was coming. This was going to be something that was going to be ground-rocking for the Yembis. It was going to be ground-rocking for the ones who went through it. It was going to be ground-rocking for the ones who were going to be on the outside. And the unbelievers were very, very much wanting to stamp this new religion out. Do not walk away from the talk of the ancestors. Do not walk away from what your fathers and grandfathers have committed to you. And they knew based off of what the believers were telling them, this is going to be a sign that I am putting to death my old ways, and I'm coming up as a new person. I'm coming up recognizing that I am part of a different group. That's what this is going to mean. This talk was firing around the village. And if you look at this picture, it's pretty exciting. Um, Everything looks great. There's a baptism going on. But if you could pan around and look at what was happening behind us, There were guys with spears that had each one, the brave seven is what they called, seven people who stepped up and said, I'll I'll get baptized. The other 25, 30 that were in the church, nah, not, not quite there yet. The brave seven, two women, five men, spears with every one of their names marked on it. And as we would baptize somebody, the rest of the believers would hold back the ones with the spears. Lady comes up out of the water, the first woman, one of my tribal mothers, Briska, She comes up out of the water, walks up out of it. Her husband breaks through the line, walks in, boom, pops her right in the face. She loses three teeth that afternoon, gets pummeled the rest of the week based off of what she did. And she kept coming. She kept coming. I praise God now for the persecution that we went through. It had a refining effect on that church that nothing else would have. Nothing else could have. Do they see themselves as a separate identity, their testimony to the community, or do they blend in so much that there's no difference whatsoever? There's no tangible difference. Number five, submission to God's word. Ultimately, this is an authority issue. 
Does, God word, does God's word supersede all other authorities? Timothy 3.16, uh, 1 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is God-breathed, even when your crops fail, even when your kids get sick, even when you don't get the job. When things start to go wrong, that's when you find out if it is a true submission to God's authority or not, or if it's just a fair weather thing. Number six, the teaching of God's word. The teaching of God's word is regular and central to their times of corporate life and prayer. And there's an awareness and the practice of Christian ordinances that are observed regularly. Do they get baptized? Do they practice the Lord's Supper? Do they recognize these things based off of the teaching that is coming? And is the teaching happening? Is there someone that is versed enough in the scriptures to stand up and to teach? And if it's not them, it's the missionary to the point to where they are raised up. <coughs> they are ready to stand on their own. Is that happening? Colossians 1.28. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all the wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. 2 Timothy 4.1, in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge, Timothy. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. You leave a church behind that doesn't have gifted guys, not gifted in ability, gifted in knowledge of the word. They don't know how to teach. Start the stopwatch. How long will it last? How long will it last? Does the teaching of God's word regularly happen in that body? If it doesn't, you don't have a church. You don't have a church, at least a church that will sustain any length of time. The teaching of God's word regularly. And finally, last one, number seven. Do they have recognized leadership? Man, oh man, this thing is massive. Do they have recognized guys that the church has seen grow, that the church recognizes, that the church sees these are our leaders, they're accountable to us, they teach they instruct, they nurture, they shepherd, they rebuke, they discipline. If they don't, they're not leaders. Do they have that clout? Do they have that understanding with the body that they're teaching, rebuking, and disciplining? Without those leaders, this is the most significant step. <coughs> Excuse me. Without those leaders, you don't have anything that will sustain the test of time. Titus 1.5. Paul is writing to Titus. He says this, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. It was unfinished until we marked elders, until we named leaders. You don't have a church in Bangladesh, in Afghanistan, in Papua New Guinea, in Indonesia, until you have marked leaders. The missionary stands in the gap until those men are raised up. Disciples, fully discipled to the point of church leadership. Acts 14.21, they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. They were already in Derby. 
Sorry, putting in my own translation there. They were in Derby. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they put their trust. Each church had its elders. Each church had its leaders. If it didn't, it didn't stand the test. You've got to have that recognized leadership. Greg Livingston, one of the founders of Frontiers, said this. He's actually got a really good book. It's on the Radius uh, Resources website. It says this. Church planning focuses on three main activities. Proclaiming the gospel to those who are unsaved. Discipling those who accept the gospel. And mentoring qualified men to serve as elders. Step one, two, Three, sounds really simple. It's actually really, really hard, really hard to walk them from disciples to a church because if you stop in between, you don't have anything that will last. You don't have a church. So these things are difficult. I'll just close with this. Man, the ultimate goal is to see a church planted. It's naive at best to think that they will naturally form from being converts into a church. That does not happen. We don't see that in Scripture. We don't see that through the history of the church. They have to be taught. They have to be trained. They have to be discipled. And they have to be rebuked and disciplined at times as well. Just like human children. Just like we see in real life. We don't leave them out on the street and say, fend for yourself. Here's some food. Good luck. Have at it. Here's this book. You got it. The Holy Spirit will guide you. No. You got to have somebody there to walk with them. You got to have somebody there to teach them, to train them up to that point of maturity. And number two, disciples are always part of a local church. If they're not part of a local church, if they don't see that as primary, they're not disciples. Disciples will understand the primariness, the centrality of a church. If they don't, they haven't been taught fully in all the scriptures. And third, The church is not a Western institution. It's a biblical one. It will not have stained glass windows. It won't have pews. It won't have pipe organs. It won't have felt offering plates going around so the coins can drop in quietly or all that kind of stuff. It's going to look different in every location. The application is going to look different, but it is a biblical institution. Until we have a church, we haven't fulfilled the Great Commission. And last, disciples are a necessary step, but they're not the final step. They're a stepping stone to what we have been called to do. The Great Commission was given to the church. It wasn't given to individuals. It was given to the church to produce other churches so that the gospel would continue to head out. I love this quote by David Hesselgrave. Uh, he's probably the, one of the premier missiologists of our generation. He says this, If people become individualistic Christians without a commitment to and a participation in the local church... How will the church move forward in her mission to disciple the nations? So intimate is the relationship between gospel proclamation and church planning that they cannot be divorced without doing violence to the mission of the church. They cannot be separated or you do violence to the mission of the church. It doesn't make sense. Converts to churches, and we don't stop until it's over. Church planning is missions. It is the final thing that we have been called to do. Let me pray with you. 
Lord Jesus, thank you so much that uh, you were clear in the scriptures. You were clear in what you had laid out for us to do as your disciples, as your church, to plant other churches, to see them come to fruition. And Lord, I pray that for those ones that are heading out, that they would not fall into that trap, that they would not fall into the idea that these things naturally occur, that it can happen. Lord, that the church is a Western institution, that it's outdated, outmoded, that it served its purpose. This is the very heartbeat of you. And Lord, most of all, I pray that we would see the marks of a New Testament church in Scripture and we would rigorously adhere to them. We would not leave behind a partially completed church. Lord, we would only complete it, we would only finish it, and then would we come home. Thank you so much for the ones who have gone before us, for the years, the history that we see in other countries, other locations. Lord, we would apply those principles to what we are wanting to do. Help us to learn from others, but Lord, help us never to forsake what you've taught us in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.